We do rejoice in knowing you. Uh, we thank you for making yourself known. Uh, the way you reveal yourself through your word um, as a, an, an awesome God, a majestic and holy and just, magnificent God who is also gracious and loving and kind and merciful. Uh, thank you for all that you've done through um, the Lord Jesus for us and thank you for all of, uh, all of the Bible which points to him. Uh, we thank you for the book of Daniel and we pray that as we read Daniel 6 today, you would draw our eyes to see uh, more of um, your glory and the wonder of our Lord Jesus. Um, we pray that you would change us by these truths for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel in the Den of Lions. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or, the or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, 
Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let me pray, and then I'm going to say a few things about it. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. As we think on it this morning, remind us once again that wherever we are in your world, you are with us, that because of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will never let us go. Amen. Uh, because I don't know many of you, I thought I'd tell you something about myself um, as we start, uh, this is a, one of those um, pu public confessions or guilty secrets that I have. Mine is that I like James Bond movies. Now, it's, it's not that bad, and I don't know if you do or don't, but no doubt you're familiar with the whole James Bond franchise, right? It's pretty straightforward. Uh, I, I like the gadgets, I like the exotic locations, and I particularly like the dreadful puns now that I'm a dad. Um, but you'll know if you've ever watched a James Bond movie that all of them follow basically the same plot. There is an evil mastermind with plans to destroy the whole world. Uh, he, he or she invariably has some hideous new weapon that no one has ever thought of, and only 007 can disarm it. 
But of course, before he can do that, uh, he has to um, surprisingly be betrayed by a close ally. Uh, before he triumphs in the last minute, uh, all the while getting the girl, defeating the much stronger but intellectually challenged bodyguard, and outfoxing the villain's final booby trap that he's put there. You know what the story is going to be every time you go to see one and you keep going back for more. And I say this because in many ways I think Daniel 1 to 6, as you've been making your way through the last six weeks, after a while it kind of feels familiar, doesn't it? Each week a new chapter but basically the same premise. It's just like James Bond. I can't believe I actually likened Daniel to James Bond but you get the idea, don't you? The story seems predictable. God's people are in exile in Babylon. Their backs are to the wall. Seemingly all is lost. But each time, God intervenes to save his people who are faithful to him. You'll have noticed in particular that Daniel 6, the reading that we've had today, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, sounded very familiar to Daniel chapter 3. If you think back a few weeks ago, that was Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the fiery furnace. Uh, very similar ideas. Let's see what we learn from this one in particular. And you'll see that I'd like to make three points there about the story itself. Firstly, an outstanding servant, a vain and foolish king, and then thirdly, a great salvation. Firstly, verses 1 through 5, an outstanding servant. Uh, the story is the same, although the protagonist is different. Uh, this time it's Persia, not Babylon. And what's happened is that Daniel has been such an outstanding servant, we're told in verse 3, he so distinguished himself that the new king, Darius, is about to promote Daniel to be his right-hand man throughout his whole kingdom. Unsurprisingly, as you know, if you've ever worked in a corporate office, his competitors are far from happy. And yet it's testimony to Daniel's faultless integrity in the workplace that when they try to find something against him, I look at verse 4, verse 4, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So instead, they resort to using his religious faith against him. And the key to their plan succeeding is the fact that the king, Darius, he is vain and foolish, which we'll see in just a moment. Uh, before we get there, it is worth pointing out that though this story is very old, it's the same today. It just keeps getting repeated over and over again. Things are no different for God's people, not in a place like 21st century Adelaide. And I fear in many ways that they'll get worse. There are many ways in which I could um, point this out. Let me just um, reference one which is relevant only because it's topical at the moment. Uh, this is on the matter of same-sex marriage. Now, I don't particularly want to talk much about it except just to observe that there's a breathtaking hypocrisy in our society when it comes to talking about this particular issue. You'll have noticed over recent weeks that um, Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, has been particularly in the news on this matter. Uh, about a month or so ago, a admittedly 
I think, foolish person decided that they would voice their objection to same-sex marriage by throwing a lemon meringue pie at uh, Alan Joyce. And you'll recall that happened. Yeah, it's a stupid and, a, and an unhelpful way of trying to raise an issue. Uh, the response of, of which, of course, was that Alan Joyce, CEO of Qantas, decides that he will ban this person from ever flying on his airline for doing that. By contrast, uh, when tennis legend Margaret Court says that she's choosing not to fly on Qantas uh, because the CEO has been using his position to advocate a particular position, all of a sudden there's talk about removing her name from the tennis arena, which is dedicated in her honour. Like I said, it's a breathtaking hypocrisy, isn't it? There's a double standard that is completely transparent and obvious, it seems, at least to some of us. But my point is, are you surprised? Are you surprised in any way? Things will only get worse, in fact, if Christians choose to speak up. Daniel chapter 6 opens with an outstanding servant who is unimpeachable in any way. And so as a result, his opponents choose to turn his faith against him if they can. And the key to it, of course, is, as I mentioned, the king, Darius, he is vain and foolish. So we come now to verses 6 through 18. Uh, their proposal is masterfully simple. Uh, they ask the king to pass a law which conveniently cannot ever be repealed. They ask the king to pass a law that for 30 days no one is allowed to pray to anyone or anything except for the king himself. If anyone does so, they're to be thrown into the lion's den. Now in case the king, as he hears this proposal, is in any way worried by how popular the law might be, verse 7, verse 7, they say, your royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue this edict. They tell the king that we're right behind you, all of us, to a man. Uh, which, of course, is patently untrue. Daniel wasn't consulted. But why let the facts get in the way of a good story, huh? And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, at the end of the day, no king is about to refuse such praise and public adulation, even if it's obtained by force. And so in verse 9, without thinking through the consequences, he passes the law. It is a picture, as I've said, of a vain and foolish king. His vanity, if I can just reflect on this for a moment, his vanity is extraordinary. You see, he rules an empire that spans the entire known world, full of hundreds and hundreds of people groups and of cultures. They have a myriad of religions, of beliefs, of understandings. And yet he is saying there is to be no worship anywhere throughout his entire empire, not even of the gods of his own religion. The only worship is to be of himself. Breathtaking vanity, isn't it? It's matched only, I think, by his foolishness. You see, he rules the most powerful nation in the world, but he's surrounded by yes-men who obviously have a conflict of interest and he's naive and short-sighted in his failure to see how his vanity will, in fact, cost the life of his most faithful of servants, that of Daniel. 
Well, pause for a moment and reflect on what Daniel does. Confronted with this situation, perhaps you might be thinking, what would I do? Daniel's response, verse 10. Have a look with me. Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Look carefully at what Daniel does. The first thing is, Daniel doesn't do what I suspect I would have been tempted to have done. You notice there was a little legal loophole in the law? It was only for 30 days. I suspect I might have thought, I'll tell you what, I'll just not pray quite as much for 30 days, wait for it to pass in this. I don't know if anyone else would have thought that, but you know, that thought did cross my mind. But it's not an option for Daniel. Not praying is not an option. And so, did you notice there that he prays with the windows open? Now, I don't suppose he needed to pray with the windows open. Maybe it was a bit hot and stuffy. But uh, I don't suppose he needed to pray with the windows open. But it's almost as if he is saying, I have nothing to hide. I don't care who sees what I do. Because in the end, God sees what I do, and he sees through, uh, through closed windows regardless. Do you notice the way in which the windows opened there in verse 10? They opened, we're told, towards Jerusalem. Which at least at this point in the history of the Bible and in the way in which the story is unfolding, Jerusalem is significant. This is a way in which we're being told that Daniel has a choice. Has a choice to either live according to what the great city of Babylon thinks, which is where he is, and where he's about to be made second only to the king in influence, or he can choose to align himself with Jerusalem, with the city of his God, even though Jerusalem lies in ruins. To put it a different way, Daniel has a choice. He has a choice between serving Darius and serving God. And his decision is clear. He will serve God no matter what, because it's more important to be faithful to God than to be favoured by the king. And the final thing to notice about verse 10, uh, did you see what Daniel's prayer was? It's an unusual kind of prayer in his circumstances. I'm not, I'm not sure what you would have prayed if you'd been confronted by this particular scenario. Perhaps you might have prayed, God, overrule Darius. God, thwart my enemies. God, help me to remain invisible for the next 30 days. Do you notice what Dan, Daniel prays, verse 10? He gives thanks to God. He gives thanks to God. Isn't that kind of unusual? Uh, We started our service today after we sang, if you recall, with a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanking God for all the things that he has blessed our life with. For the material things that we have, for the gift of the Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have. Those are good things to thank God. Would many of you have thought that you would thank God for the situation that you find yourself in if you had been Daniel? 
What is he thanking God for, do you think? Well, we're not told, but here's my suspicion. I think he is thanking God that God is in control. He's thanking God that God rules over Darius and his ridiculous laws. He's thanking God that God is a higher authority even than the laws of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed. And I think he is thanking God that one day God will bring his people home from Babylon to Jerusalem. This utterly godless city which looks impregnable but in fact, as we're going to discover in the next few chapters, will not last much longer. Well, what happens next is uh, kind of like that Hollywood script that I've been talking about. It's utterly predictable. Daniel prays, his enemies see him, they have their proof, they go to the king. They've now just not just entrapped Daniel, they've boxed the king into a corner. And so that ego-stoking law that the king first passed to make himself feel better about himself has in fact backfired spectacularly. And no amount of squirming from the king can get Daniel off the hook. Which means the outstanding servant becomes a victim of a vain and foolish king. Uh, the irony, of course, is what the king does. Did you notice verse 16? Verse 16, the king gave the order. They brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Uh, the king is guilty of exactly the same crime as Daniel. The king prays to Daniel's God, the very thing that he's thrown him into the lion's den for. Well, the conclusion, verses 19 through 28, let me just say a couple of things about this and then draw some application for us. Uh, a great salvation, verses 19 through 28. The king can't sleep that night. There's no entertainment brought to him. He has a restless evening. He rushes out at the first light of dawn, which is not very dignified behaviour for kings. And when he gets to the lion's den, he calls out in an anguished voice, we're told, uh, to Daniel. To discover that Daniel, it seems, had a better night's sleep than the king did. Daniel answers the king, and so the story concludes. Let's see what happens to each of the three main characters. Firstly, Daniel's enemies. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their homes. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Daniel's enemies suffer the same fate they intended for Daniel. And, let me just point out on a somber note, even their wives and children are put to death. Now, of course, I'm not being in any way critical of that excellent Minecraft video, but I noticed that this point didn't feature there with the youth group. This is one of the harshest and hardest parts of the story. And I'm not going to dwell on it this morning, since last week in chapter 5, you saw how God's judgment falls on everyone eventually. But this much I do want to say. 
in seeing that not just Daniel's enemies but their families too are punished, it's a reminder that the consequences of our sin, they extend beyond ourselves. If we turn against the living God, the consequences are bigger than just what are visited on our shoulders. I often hear people saying that uh, they'd believe in God if it weren't for all the awful suffering in this world that cannot be explained, as if somehow that proves to them that there is no such thing as a God. I understand why people make that comment, but one response is to gently point out that our world, our world which seeks to live under human control, and with self-autonomy, it is a dangerous place where our actions have consequences. And in fact, there is no reason to expect any justice or fairness or goodness from a God you do not believe in. If you don't believe in this God, you have no right to expect anything good to happen, I think. Because if by chance something good does happen, That's all it is. It's chance. And you have no one to thank if it's just statistical probability. Darius, what happens to him? Look at verse 25. Uh, I said earlier that I thought Darius was a fool, and I think he is, but to his credit, by the end of the story, at least he's man enough, humble enough, to admit the errors of his ways. And so in verses 25 through 27, you see that he changes the law that everyone in his kingdom must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. It's not entirely clear what Darius means by this. It's not explained how he manages to get around the legal prevention from earlier. Maybe if you're a dictator, you just do what you like in the end. It's also not clear if this is, for Darius, a full-on conversion I suspect not. But at least in his declaration, he is now heading in the right direction. And so in many ways, what I think Darius represents is each one of us. All of us are sinners. All of us at some point must admit that we have made a mistake. All of us must turn back to God. And that process of turning it starts us on a path that takes the rest of our lives. What about Daniel? Well, verse 28, here's the conclusion. Daniel was spared from the lions, we're told, verse 22, in fact, because he was found innocent in God's sight. He was innocent in God's sight. God's opinion, in the end, is the only one which matters. God's court, not Darius's, is the only one which matters. And as verse 23 has put it, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Okay, there's the story. Same one as you've been hearing for the last six weeks. Just different characters, slightly different plot line. A couple of things to say for us. Uh, You'll see them listed there. Firstly, Daniel and Jesus, and then Jesus in us. Have a look at Acts Acts chapter 2. Here, the Apostle Peter, speaking on the day of Pentecost, 
says this. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I cannot help but be struck by the parallels between a Jew named Daniel who was cast into the lion's den some 600 years before Christ, the parallels between him and another Jew by the name of Jesus who was thrown into a tomb of death. You see, like Daniel, Jesus made his enemies bitterly jealous of his success and popularity. Like Daniel, Jesus defied the authorities who tried to gag him and ordered him to keep quiet. Like Daniel, Jesus was arrested on trumped-up charges of treachery against the rulers. And like Daniel, Jesus was sentenced to death after a sham trial. Unlike Daniel, there was no miraculous deliverance for Jesus, at first at least. Nailed to a cross, crucified dead and buried, his body tossed into a tomb. And yet... As we know, three days later, just like Daniel, Jesus came out of his tomb, out of his cave, out of his den alive, because even death could not hold him down. And like the conclusion to Daniel's story in chapter 6, Jesus will be restored to his rightful place of honour, even higher, according to Philippians 2. Before Jesus now, his enemies will be crushed and his kingdom will have no end. It will never be destroyed. Daniel describes for us a great salvation. Jesus brings an even greater deliverance. He brings victory over death. And so if there's a connection between Daniel and Jesus, then finally, Jesus at us. See, just as the Bible is one continuous story from Genesis through Revelation, it moves from Daniel to Jesus, and so we trace a path from Jesus to ourselves. So at one level, the book of Daniel is, all, is a practical guide about how to be faithful to God in Babylon. But at a more profound level, what makes it all possible is that though we're not in Babylon, still the same God is faithful to us. The Apostle Paul, I think, puts that principle best. This is in one of the great passages of the Bible in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Let me finish here just with this passage saying a couple of things along the way. Romans 8, verse 31, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, it's, an, it's a rhetorical question, right? The answer clearly is no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one, or more accurately, no one of any importance. 
If you're not convinced, look at how Paul goes on in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is saying that if God has given up his own son, the Lord Jesus, how can you ever think, how can you ever accuse God of being mean-spirited, of holding out on you, of shortchanging you in any way? He has given us his son. There is nothing he is holding back from us. And if that's the case, then in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul is asking, do you have any doubts about what will happen when you stand before the one who has made all things? When you appear before the judgment seat of God, do you have any doubts about what will happen then? Well, hear Paul's response. Paul's response is, no one whom God has chosen, whom God is for, no one who is innocent in God's sight can stand any accusation brought against them because it's God who justifies it's God who declares us to be innocent despite our sinfulness when the Lord Jesus died in our place. And the image here in verses 34 and 35 is that the one who was dead and is now alive, he is the one who is sitting at God's right hand. He is the one who is advising God what to do with us. He is the one who speaks on our behalf. So there is no doubt about our salvation. And it's important to acknowledge that though that might be the final outcome, the trials of this life are still real. Suffering is still inevitable. It was for Daniel. It was for Jesus. It will be for us. But you understand therefore what Paul's response is. Don't pretend that the trials won't come. Just remind us that those trials are not final and they are not overwhelming. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is very clear. Those trials will continue, and yet, verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me ask you then, in this week ahead, what is there that worries you. Perhaps it's a hard choice about godliness when the world around offers an easier, cheaper fix. Perhaps it's a relationship you want healed, a debt you need repaid, an exam you need to pass. Perhaps you are worried about a public stand for Christ that you know you need to take at work, at the club, 
with your neighbour, in your family. Those are genuine things to be worried about. But what Daniel 6 and Romans 8 remind us is that the Lord Jesus went to the cross for you. That's how much he cares for you. What Daniel 6 and Romans 8 remind us is that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the kind of power at his disposal. What Daniel 6 and Romans 8 remind us is that God has given us his most valuable possession, his own son, so he will not ever shortchange you. He is on our side, so neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything, anything in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, for his life, his death, his resurrection, and for the hope of his return. And we ask and pray that in this week ahead you might enable us to know his love, to stand firm in it, and that you might use us, therefore, to bring glory to him. Amen.